Thank you. All right. Good morning. All right. For those of you on our email list, and again, if you're not on email list and you'd like to be, you can just send me a note and say, hey, please add me to the regular list and you can find out all about the activities and things that we're going to be talking about in here and, and uh, be glad to add you to that, that list. Uh, so we're, we're in the middle of a series called, called The Hard Sayings of the Bible, and we're going to do it a little bit differently today, as I uh, warned you on email. Normally in this series, I'll tell you on Saturday what the passage that we're going to discuss on Sunday is. And generally speaking, I tell you why it's a difficult passage, and then I'll give you my best attempt to explain uh, what the passage means and hopefully provide you with a little peace in your hearts and minds as to why we should be okay with the passage as, as it's outlined for us and given to us and presented in the Bible. But today, instead, I'm going to reveal to you what passage we're going to talk about, and I'm going to pretend that I'm a friend of yours. Well, I'm a fr I am a friend of yours. <laughs> I just mean like a, a friend outside the church that uh, maybe maybe a friend that uh, is a neighbor that doesn't isn't familiar with the church or maybe a friend that isn't saved or maybe a friend that uh, is uh, saved that um, is, is coming to know what it means to be a Christian and, and beginning to understand the scriptures and has questions about it. And uh, let's say I'm a friend and I come to you and I say, hey, I've been reading the Bible and I stumbled across this passage and I'm confused by it. Can you can you tell me what it means? Okay. So that's what I'm going to do. And who knows? Maybe you all, maybe you all know uh, everything about this passage I'm about to read to you, and that's the case. Then it's going to be a short lesson today. Uh, but, or perhaps maybe we have a few questions remaining after our attempts to explain it. And if that's the case, then I'm going to walk you through how you might explore and, and dig your way through the Bible to come up with a thorough explanation of this difficult passage that we're going to look at today. And it, 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 as it relates to our, our hypothetical, our hypothetical situation, there's something about this exercise that I want you to realize and understand. If you're ever in a situation uh, where you're presented something similar, like you have a friend that uh, is saying, I, I don't know what this verse means. You're a Christian. I know you've been a Christian a long time. Perhaps you should know what this means and you can tell me. And maybe in that, those moments, maybe there's moments like this that you have that uh, maybe you don't have an answer at the forefront of your mind or at the forefront of your, your mouth ready to go. Um, and that's okay. I don't know is a perfectly acceptable answer. I don't know is a great answer. As a matter of fact, there was a couple of people here at the church that were going to embark on, on teaching a, a Bible study. And one of them was telling me and questioning their ability to do this, to be able to facilitate it and being a teacher. And they said, you know, some of the effect of, they said, I'm just afraid I won't have all the answers. And I said, you won't, <laughs> you won't have all the answers. Trust me, having all the answers does not a good teacher make. I don't know why I said that like Yoda. Who is a great teacher, by the way. A, a good teacher is one who acknowledges their limitations and, and is one who isn't afraid to say, I don't know. I've said it to you all the time. I don't know. But I also explained to them, you don't leave it at I don't know. You never leave it at I don't know. It's perfectly fine and genuine to say, you know what? I don't know, but, but let me do some more digging. Let me, let me see if I can provide you with an answer that, that makes a little bit more sense. Because I don't know about you. Oftentimes, we'll, again, as we struggle with some passages in the Bible, we'll say, I, I don't know what that means. And then we'll, we'll get an answer. Ah, and now my heart and mind are satisfied. And then I forget about it. And then maybe five years later, like, I know I was once at peace with this, but now I can't remember why I was at peace with this. So, so you want to come back around and again, and refresh your memory. So all that to say, if you don't know the answer to the question, uh, this is why I want to walk you through the paces of, of how you might uh, uh, arrive at an answer that, uh, that satisfies your heart and mind. Okay, so what's the passage we're going to look at? 
The passage that I picked has its roots in a real life experience that I had. I went to college at uh, Georgia State University, which is uh, situated right in the heart of downtown Atlanta. And one thing that's uh, peculiar or particular about this school is that its enrollment includes quite a diverse population of people from all ages, nationalities, religious beliefs. And, and so one day I was, I was in the courtyard and reading, I was doing some reading and, and someone approached me. And I was amused because I was, I was certain that they were coming to me to, to witness to me or to evangelize. And, and I'm like, oh, great, let's see how this goes. And so, you know, I, I played off like, a, tell me about this Jesus. I, I, didn't quite, I wasn't quite that, that obvious about it. But that was sort of the welcoming uh, posture I gave them. And, uh, and then I would just tell them, well, I'm a Christian too. Uh, so I just let him start talking. And it wasn't too long into his presentation when I began to realize, oh, I, I don't think he's a Christian. I don't think he's a Christian. I'm not sure what he is, but he's not a Christian. I, I realized he wasn't a Christian based on what he was telling me. In short, he was saying something to the effect, it, he was saying something to the effect that it's possible, he said, it's possible to re reach a state of perfection here on earth. And when he started telling me that, I'm like, oh, this is not what I believe. <laughs> and so I told him, no, no one is perfect. All, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And then he, he told me I was wrong, that perhaps I'm imperfect now, but it's possible for me to reach a state of perfection in this life. And I told him, I'm, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You're wrong. And then he opened up a, a, a book that looked like the Bible. And he said to me, look, here it is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. And it says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. And there it is. There it is. That's our hard saying for today. And you see, after he pointed this verse out to me, uh, I still insisted that no one was perfect except for God. You know, and we can't be perfect. Not on this side of heaven anyway. And then he told me, and he was quite exasperated by it. He said, why would Jesus tell you to do something that you are incapable of doing? And to tell you the truth, I don't remember exactly where the conversation went from there, because I think he stumped me. I think he stumped me in the moment. I'm not sure I had a good answer him. So I probably told him, sorry, I got to catch up on my economics. I got to go. Okay. And that was it. And that was my, uh, <laughs> my full experience with him. So with that, let me pose the question to you. I want to pose this question to you. What does this verse mean? Are we able to be perfect? And if we're not able to be perfect, why would Jesus command us to do something that we're unable to do? Who wants to go first? And I told you I'm going to change it up a little bit. Watch what I'm going to do now. Ready? I'm not, I'm not posting this to YouTube. This is just for the benefit of our friends uh, watching online, okay? And I want to circulate around the room here. Who wants to answer for us? So this is like the old Phil Donahue show. Remember the old Phil Donahue show? Tell me, David. Okay. <laughs> do, you want, do you want to take a shot at it? What, what, if, if, uh, if this is a command, right? Are we able to do it? If we're not able to do it, why would Jesus tell us to do it? This, this is something that I've wondered about for a long time. I don't have the exact answer, but uh, there is an old Wesleyan doctor, doctrine called Entire Sanctification. Mm -hmm. And it's about being perfect and feeling that you can be perfect in this earth. But they when I look at it, I think I'm in process. And so you're in process now, but you won't be perfect until you're fully glorified. Okay. All right. I think my friend in the courtyard would have disagreed because he was trying to tell me, he says, no, 
right now. And I was, are you perfect? Because I see some things. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Anyone else want to give, me, give it a try? All right, back here. It was, did you raise your hand? You want to, come on, you got to be on blast. Yo, you got to be on blast here today. We're all. Okay, she said, she said that she was thinking about where this, this, uh, this passage lies, and it lies in Matthew chapter 5, which is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. That's a very good start. Keep going. Yes. That's good. <laughs> and now we can be dismissed because again, she got it. She, this is, she got it exactly right. I mean, and again, what I want to do is, and I'm glad, I'm glad you did this because we're, we're starting to see it. The first thing she mentioned was, was Matthew chapter five. And again, always important to understand context. If there's anything you learn from this study over and over again, context, context, it's the same thing like real estate, right? What's the most important, what's the three most important things in real estate? Location, location, location. Same thing with, with understanding difficult passage of the Bible. Context, 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 every single time. And again, this exercise that we're about to engage in, I think is going to highlight, and for those of you who didn't hear online, if you couldn't hear that quite online, I'm going to walk you through basically everything that, that we just heard, okay, from uh, Ro Rose, oh, Marie, I got 50% of it. Rosemarie, not Marie, Rosemarie, Rosemarie, gosh, I'm so sorry. I've known you forever. Uh, we're going to outline everything that Rosemary just went over, okay? Someone else? Anyone else have a comment? We're on the right track so far. Couldn't be, yeah, Brince? Yeah, let's hear it. It's for the folks online so they can hear too. I've never even thought of this as a connection, but interesting. That's good. That's good. Brent's uh, was saying that he doesn't, he never viewed this as a command, uh, that it's more of a standard. And again, I think you're, we're, we're chipping away at the right answer here. And again, I was caught off guard all the way back in, in my days in Georgia State, because again, I was, a, I was still a fairly young Christian, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that I hadn't considered before. And I, and I would read the Bible in such a way that I would say, okay, if it's in the Bible, it's, it's a commandment, right? And that's another thing that we have to understand uh, in terms of understanding difficult passages of the Bible. One of the most important things to do first is to understand what's being told to us. Is this, is this, a, uh, is this a, a commandment? Is it, is it God or Jesus telling us, do this, don't do that? Or is it in the context of a letter? Because you, you interpret those things differently. Or is it a psalm? Because you read a psalm differently than you would read a, 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 an epistle. You read Revelation and Daniel, those books, differently than you would read Genesis. You read a narrative different, and you always have to consider them for what they are, okay? So great, great feedback, okay? And again, one of the points that I, 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 you've touched on that I remember trying to, to make with this guy in the courtyard was that perfection was the standard. We've already touched on this. Perfection was the standard. Just because we can't attain perfection doesn't mean the standard therefore changes right? 
The standard remains a standard. And this is when he got exasperated with me. Why would Jesus tell you to do something that you aren't able to do? And I, and I thought that's a really good question. That's a great question. I think that was the component of the conversation that rattled me. So, so what we want to do uh, with, this, with this passage, first things first, we've already identified uh, the context. And again, I can't emphasize that enough. Again, if you get nothing else out of this study, not just this week, but for the weeks long study that we're going to be in, the, the key to understanding a difficult passage is context. It's always context and realize where it sits within the chapter, where it sits within the book and where that book sits within the Old or New Testament and, and where it flows along the, the whole story of redemption. Okay. As it was pointed out by Rose Marie, <laughs> got it that this passage finds itself in Matthew chapter five. And if we're looking through our Bibles and we're looking at the passage uh, that's, that are around it, we're going to find the greater context of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's, let's try and rewind a little bit. Uh, let's see what's going on in the verses that are leading right up to Matthew 548, because after all, as, as, uh, as my, my friend in the courtyard had done, we can't just take this one, first, one verse and make it stand on its own. We can't just take it and say, this is what I'm going to build my theology around, this one verse. You have to consider everything else that's around it. And right away, we get a clue that this is tied to something else. What's our clue that this is tied to something else? I saw you say it. I saw you mouth it. One of the first, I can't remember who said this, but maybe you've heard it said before. When you ever see therefore in the Bible, you got to figure out what's it there for? What's the therefore there for? Uh, and again, Great, great feedback or great, uh, great um, uh, insight. So let's back up to the verses immediately before verse 48. And those of you that have your Bibles, what's being said in the verses leading up to 40? What's the general topic heading? A lot of you have headings in your Bible. Right about 43, what is the heading that it says there? Love your enemies. Okay, let's, let's read just this section first. Let's start off with this section. This is Matthew 5, 43, and it says this. You have heard it said, uh, folks online, once again, sorry, I don't mean to uh, leave you behind here. Matthew 5, 43, if you can't see up here, you can follow along. And before I do, I see there's a comment in here. I don't want to leave you. Jesus sets that goal. Uh, this is from Shelly. Yeah. Uh, Jesus sets that goal uh, before, uh, for us, before us so we can uh, see our need for God to do what we cannot. Again, this is a theme that we're going to hear about in the sermon, too. But anyway, let's read Matthew 5, 43 and following. So this is immediately before our, our difficult verse. So you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son uh, to rise on the evil and the good, on evil and the good, yeah, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Here it is. Be perfect. Therefore, in light of everything that I just said, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay. So what are we making of this? What are we making of this? You've already touched on it a little bit here. Okay. He says, Jesus starts off by saying, you have heard it said, you have heard it said. And then he goes on to say, but I tell you, what do we make of that? Is Jesus trying to clear something up here? Yes, he's trying to clear something up. Let me go back one here. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Where did Jesus get that? He says, you have heard it said, where was it said? Does it sound like a Bible verse, maybe? Psalm, what does it say in Psalm 5? <laughs> oh, geez, you're using your study, study Bible. It's, that's a good tactic. We gotta, have you ever heard it said somewhere in the Bible, love your enemy? Okay, yes. Obviously, it said that in the New Testament. We've, said it, we've seen that a few times. Did it ever say that in the Old Testament? Yes. Did it say, love your enemy or love your, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy? Is that how it was said? No, no. And Jesus is saying, you have heard it said. Okay. So, so listen, this, this is, again, thinking about context here. Jesus was talking to a group of people who maybe understood uh, the, the Old Testament and maybe understood the law. Okay. And they got this, Leviticus 19, 17 to 18. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor. There it is. This is the, this is the Mosaic law. Love your neighbor as yourself, as I am the Lord. But does it say hate your enemy? No. Where did that part come from? That came from Psalms? To hate your enemy? Okay. <laughs> Hate all evildoers. Okay, so what happened? How did we get to love your neighbor, hate your enemy? Okay, they took pieces of the Bible and they mishmashed them together a little bit and they said, okay, great. Now, now I want you to know something. My, my kids do this all the time. My kids do this all the time. You said, okay, boys, uh, you've been on the computers long enough today. It's time to give them, let's give them a break. So come on down here, have a seat on the, the couch or whatever, but we're, we're done with computers. And they'll come, they'll make their way downstairs. And once they get downstairs, they kick back and then they, they take out their phones. <laughs> so what are you doing? You set off the computers. Okay, the phones too. Okay, give them, okay, fine. We'll put the phones down. Get the remote control and they turn on the TV. No, no, you didn't say no phone. You said no, no computers, we're off the... The phones and the TV now too. I said, listen, for the next hour, I want you to do nothing that involves electricity. Not even the light bulb in your room. You're not allowed to. Use, this is what this is how parenting devolves. Don't even use. Don't even use light bulbs. Go outside and do what they did in the 1600s. Go find a horse to play with. All right, that's what we mean. So the people of the day, they read the law: love your neighbor as yourself. And when they read that, they said, okay, love my neighbor. And they took that to mean because the words just prior to that read Israelite. They read that and thought, okay, who's my neighbor? My neighbor's my fellow Israelite. Then who am I supposed to love? My neighbor. That's my neighbor, my fellow Israelite. You see, they assumed that just because the Israelite was mentioned, that it was just the Israelites that they had to love. Further, since they were only told to love their fellow Israelites, they took that to mean they were allowed to hate everyone else. And again, when you read in Psalms, you know, hate the evildoer, Again, you have to read it as a psalm. Read it as a psalm. Psalms are poetic, okay? And so they said, okay, great. I'll love the Israelite, but I'm going to hate everybody else. And I have license to do that. And even it's expected of me. That's my job to hate everyone else, okay? They failed to understand, like my kids here, right? That the law is, is not just prescriptive, but it's also restrictive as well. There's a whole layer of the law that they were missing here. And this is why Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, 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 he's saying. No, no, no. What I'm here to say is what it actually means 
the part that you've missed. And what it actually means is, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay? In other words, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, here's, here's where you think the law is. Here's where you think the law is, but where is it actually? It's way up here, way up here. You think you're doing right here, but you're way off. You're way off. Now let's back up some more. Okay, let's back up some more. What's going on that said right before that section in uh, 43, for those of you that have Bible headings, what's, what's the section just prior to that? What's the heading on, on that in about verse 38, I think it is? An eye for an eye, an eye for an eye. You have heard it said, this is that right at 38, you have heard it said that it was said, again, same pattern here, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. We covered that verse a few weeks ago. It's on the podcast. If you want to rewind and listen to that sometime, it's, uh, it's available. But again, it's the same pattern that we just read. We just read this. You have heard it said, and where do you think they heard that from? Where is the, you have heard it said? Also from the law, also from Moses, okay? It's in Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. Let's see if we can figure this out. How do you think the law might have been misinterpreted? Again, Scott, oh, you have, you want to, yeah. How do you think the law was misinterpreted here? I'm going to do this again. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to get weird. Phil Donahue's got to make his way across the room. Mm -hmm. um, back there, I. Excellent. Okay, so what uh, you're going to hear a little bit about this in the sermon today, too, is that there are three elements of the law, okay? And there are three elements that we like to think of when we talk about the law. There's the moral law, right? What, uh, what, is, what, is, uh, what is a moral law encompass? Can want to take a guess at that one? Ten Commandments. Great. Does the moral law ever change? The moral law never changes. The Ten Commandments are always the Ten Commandments. But then there was also the civil law. The civil law that was specifically... Uh, designed and made to govern the people of Israel and to govern a theocracy, a, a people that were led by uh, God himself, okay? That's what the civil law was for. What's the third element? It's the laws of ceremonial, the, the Levitical laws or, the, or the, the worship laws, okay? And it says, every time you go into the temple, uh, do this. When you're in the temple, do that. When you're performing this sacrifice, do that. Now, of those three, moral law is always... Civil law goes away because as that government went away, so did the civil law. Same thing with the, the Levitical laws. Those went away too because the temple is no more, okay? And so when you read an eye for an eye, uh, Dave? Yeah. yeah, got it. Sometimes, sometimes it still works. Uh, Dave was telling us that this was probably in a civil context, in context of, of justice, in context of, of how, do you, how do you govern a people? How do a people uh, live amongst one another and, and, and not escalate, okay? Uh, <laughs> I could tell you another story, but... Uh, okay, so Scott, our senior pastor, oh, I'm gonna get in trouble for this, sometimes tends to take little pieces of chocolate that are right outside there and, and he'll, he'll, he'll toss it into my office and it'll startle me. And, and it'll, because it bounces across my desk and he thinks he's cute. So I brought in one of my kids' Nerf guns that shoots literally eight rounds per second to these. And what have I done? Am I throwing chocolates back at him? No, I've escalated the situation. 
<laughs> and it started, I'm so glad it startled him. And then he says, that hurts. I'm like, good. <laughs> but again, it's meant, it's meant to govern a people, but it's not meant, it wasn't put in place to be able to say, uh, hey, now, you know, work out your personal vendettas with one another here. Eye for an eye. No, this was done in the, in the, in the context of, of a civil government. And again, they, it's Jesus coming in here saying, um, okay, here's a law requiring, you, you're understanding it this way, the law is requiring you not to escalate matters. It's not, it's not requiring anything else of me. It's just asking me not to escalate. That's all it's requiring of me. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, it's much more than that. It's much, much more than that. Okay, again, here's where you think the standard is, but where actually is the standard? It's way up here. It's way up here. And again, that's what the, 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 the pattern of this whole monologue that's what Rosemary was telling us a second ago. Again, look at every heading before that. Every heading starts out the same way. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said, but I tell you. Every one of those. And then how does this whole section, after Jesus does this, this massive recapitulation of the law, how does it end? This section, how does this section end? Be perfect, therefore, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So, so given everything that we just talked about, what is this verse telling us? It's the same thing, context. You think the standard is here. Read it in light of that. You think the standard is here, but where actually is the standard? Way up here. Way up here. What's the standard? Perfection. Perfection is the standard, okay? context. It's way up here. So in a sense, I was right when I was talking to my friend back in the courtyard at Georgia State. Just because we have a, a perception of where the standard should be, right? Just because we can't maintain the standard doesn't mean the standard changes. All right? The standard is perfection. You know what? That, that's the major theme, one of these major themes in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's, let's back up. Let's back up a little bit more all the way. Same, same chapter. So I'm just going backwards. Again, this is what you do when you're trying to understand a difficult passage of scripture. Keep backing up. See what leads into it before you get to it. Consider everything that's being said before you get into it. So let's, let's back up a little further. 5.17, Matthew 5.17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished, okay? If you understand this, if you understand what's being said here, you're not gonna stumble across my, Matthew 5:48 and wonder, what does that mean? If you get this, if you understand this, what does it mean when he says that he came to fulfill the law? What does that mean? I came to fulfill the law perfection. Thank you, Todd. I came to be perfect. I came to be perfect. Okay. I'm going to back up a little bit more. When at the start of Jesus's ministry, John the Baptist was a messenger of God sent to prepare the way of the Lord. He was sent ahead of Jesus and he had a message for the people of, of God. What was his message? You remember what John the Baptist was, came to, to preach? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay. This is Matthew 3. Now we're back up a little bit more. All this leads into our verse in Matthew 5. Matthew 3, verses 1 to 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of, uh, for the kingdom 
of heaven has come near. And as a part of this call to Jewish people, to Jewish people, these are the people of God, the chosen people of God. He's saying, repent. You know why? Because you're not acting Jewish. You, you need a bath. You're sinful. You need to get in the waters as an act of repentance. Let me tell you how radical that was. Because people were like, I'm chosen. And you're telling me I need to repent? Saying, yes, you're not ready. The kingdom of God is hand and you are not ready. And then what happens? Along comes Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And what does Jesus ask John the Baptist to do? Baptize me. Jesus, maybe you don't understand what's going on here, Jesus. Maybe you don't get it, what I'm doing here. Jesus, I'm baptizing sinners. And you have to know that John the Baptist, first prophet of God in 400 years, he must have understood something about what was going on here when he said, the Lamb of God. He must have understood that the Lamb of God had to be perfect. And now he's saying, baptize me in your sinner's ritual here. And what does John the Baptist say? Oh, no, I can't do that, Jesus. I'm not, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. You should baptize me. You should baptize me. And what does Jesus tell him? Matthew 3, 15. I love this. I love this. How it fits together. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. He said, just, just do it, John. Just do what I'm telling you to do. Just do it. What did we read back in Matthew 5 leading up to our verses when, when Jesus was talking about be perfect? What did he say? Same thing. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fulfill them. There's that word fulfill again. Why is Jesus being baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? The reason Jesus is standing there in the Jordan River, and I love this. I love this so much. I love this so much. The reason he's standing in the Jordan River being baptized because he's saying, I'm here to do whatever is required of man. Whatever is required of man. I'm here to fulfill all the things in the law that man before me was unable to fulfill. And if the first prophet of God in 400 years comes along telling the people of God be baptized, then by golly, I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to be baptized because I'm here on behalf of the people. I'm here to fulfill every last jot and tittle of the law. I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it perfectly. I'm going to do it perfectly. I'm going to do it perfectly, okay? As my heavenly Father is perfect. So let's bring it in for a landing here. You see what Jesus is doing? He's restating the law, as Rosemary told us. He's restating the law, and he's showing us how high the bar is in the law. But before he was, he was saying how he, before that, he was saying how he is going to fulfill the law and meet that high standard. The standard doesn't change. Someone somehow has to fulfill that law and be perfect as the heavenly father is perfect. Again, there's another point that's going to come out in the sermon. I love when all these things work together like this. Do you see what the point of the law is? The point of the law, and I wish I could go back to my friend in the courtyard and, and say, yes, the law of God demands perfection from us. And yes, the law of God is meant to show us that we can't earn God's favor by observing the law. We can't do it. And if you get to a place, you say, why would God tell us he, he's do, to do something that we can't do so that you understand 
that you have a need far greater than you are able to fulfill on your own. That's why the law exists. Friend, our only hope, I wish I could have told him, friend, our only hope is if someone comes down and lives perfectly on our behalf. That's our only hope. And that's what Jesus did for me. That's what Jesus did for you. To fulfill the standard in in Galatians 3, Paul refers to the law as our guardian. And in another translation, it's rendered as not guardian, but schoolmaster. Does the word schoolmaster conjure up any pleasant memories for you? Uh, My dad uh, grew up in a a Catholic uh, church. He went to school in a Catholic church and he took piano lessons (laughs) for about a year. I'm surprised he, he made it that long because he said that every time he missed a note, the the <laughs> you're acting it out the the, the nun the, the big angry nun that was with him teaching him piano would smack his hands it's a wonder my dad doesn't play piano or didn't play piano he's he passed away last year when he never could play piano he, he liked to think he could but he, he was terrible at it but that was what a schoolmaster did the schoolmaster points out to you immediately what it is you've done wrong other other translations render it as tutor which is a nicer word but schoolmaster render you know it's like if you mess up this much bam you messed up that's what the law is to us it's meant to show us that we can't do it it's meant to show us that that we really 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 need a savior because the standard is way up here way up here And so Paul finishes that thought in Galatians like this. And with this, I'll finish too. Give me enough time to to make it to the sanctuary and take a few of your questions, hopefully. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under that schoolmaster. So in Christ Jesus, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Do you know what that means that you've you've clothed yourself with Christ? Do you know what that means you have draped over you? Perfection. You have perfection draped over you. You you are now at this standard. When, when, When God the Father looks at you, he sees you draped in this robe of perfection, and now you've met the standard. You've met the standard. Now, again, we we talk about sanctification, talk about sanctification here. And this is why we have to understand several components of, of our salvation here. There's, there's justification, and that justification means that God looks at you and sees perfection, the perfection of his son, but he doesn't leave us. He's not, he's not, so, he's not uh, uh, thinking, oh, well, good, job done. No, sanctification takes place over the rest of your life, and that's, that is, is, uh, is, is part of our salvation too. But in terms of your right standing before God, you've got it. You've got perfection. You have it because someone else obtained it on your behalf and gave it to you. His record became our record and we're clothed in his righteousness. So we get credit for having obeyed the law perfectly, perfectly. See that? All right. What, what final comments and questions uh, might you have? And I, I'm going to give you uh, four minutes and then I got to run to the sanctuary. Any other comments or questions? Brents? Oh, uh, Brent was saying that he says that he knows that some places the law is capitalized and sometimes it's not. Uh, the law is generally, when it's referred to the, the Mosaic law, in this translation will be rendered with a capital L. It's a, just a proper noun. That's all it is. And it generally, 
something about the ESV, and I bet you some of you uh, don't, uh, don't realize this. Uh, have you ever noticed that sometimes we, we capitalize the word his, and sometimes we don't capitalize the word his, and sometimes even on our worship slides that we see up there, that be the same thing. Well, which is right? Well, the Greek, I've been studying Greek, <laughs> utilizes capital letters too, okay? And every time in the, the ESV in particular, uh, when it comes to the word his or you know, proper pronouns, it doesn't capitalize them. And again, we, what we've sort of done in, in modern uh, English language is we've used that to, to be a sign of respect. And so I'm going to capitalize his out of utter respect. And again, that's, that's a good thing in and of itself. But the translators of the ESV said, you know what? I'm going to try and, and, uh, and, and translate this as true as I can, you know, word for word. And if it's not capitalized in the Greek, uh, and then I'm not going to capitalize it in, uh, in, uh, in the English translation either. Again, because they didn't want to import anything, any commentary, even that subtle uh, to you. So again, we can be sure that if it's capitalized here, it's likely capitalized in the, uh, in the Greek, noting that it's the, a proper noun. So good question, though. That was two minutes. <laughs> but a great guess, Rosemarie. The law required. Yes. Uh -huh. Mhm. Mm mhm. Mm yeah. Bull scapegoat. Uh huh. Yeah. Yes. So Rosemary's question was for the folks here online. Great question, talking about the Levitical law and how uh, the the priest would lay his literally lay his hands on on the, on the bull or the or the scapegoat as a transference of sin symbolizing the transference of sin and she was asking is there a correlation between that and what John the Baptist did when when Jesus came down to the Jordan River and and put his hands on on Jesus and again yes i think that's highly symbolic of the fact that that there was a uh, a symbolic gesture going on there that uh, and even though John didn't understand it in the moment, you know, this is the first prophet that that that, that we've seen in 400 years come along, and and uh, and again, acting even as a priest in this moment, uh, putting his hands upon the sacrifice. Again, no one understood this when it was happening. Uh, even John the Baptist, you know, he still was like, "Wait a minute, what's happening?" But again, very symbolic gesture because everything that was happening in the Old Testament, uh, in in in, the, in terms of Levitical law, was a pointer was a pointer to what would ultimately be fulfilled in the New Testament. And this is an act echoing all those other acts, showing that would ultimately happen when, when Jesus uh, died on the cross. Um, great question. Great insight. Man, I'm impressed. Yes. I was thinking about John's father was Zechariah. Zechariah, who was a high priest. Zechariah, that's right, John's father. He was part of the priestly line, so it would be completely appropriate for him uh, to, to act out exactly what Rosemary was talking about. Another great insight. Thank you. You guys are smart. You guys should teach. And I should be up here saying, I don't know. <laughs> Brought it full circle. All right, let me close this in prayer and then uh, we'll be dismissed and I can hustle over to the sanctuary. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's, it's so fun. Thank you that it's uh, so uh, life-giving. And thank you that 
we can read it and feel the burden of the law lifted from us. Uh, but Father, help us not to be satisfied with the fact that uh, you've justified us, but now help us to, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not because we think it'll gain us some kind of right standing with you. We already have that, uh, but because we want to be reflections of you. And, uh, and we know that to walk in your footsteps is, is, uh, is, is the best thing that we can do. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your law. And thank you for uh, the fact that Jesus came to fulfill that law on our behalf. Uh, go with us as we go our different ways today and, and um, uh, just give us your peace. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right.